Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hi, this is uh, Paul Axton, and this is part two of a podcast that I'm doing on Orientalism. And actually, the point of the podcast is uh, beyond the notion simply of Orientalism, but to get at the idea of really what I presume is always the case in human discourse outside of Christ. And in this talk, then, I will pick up and and say how this discourse has, in fact, been layered over the world so that Christianity itself has been shaped by this structure and, in fact, is made to fit an understanding that is inimical to the very understanding or notion of uh, Christian salvation. But, of course, a Christian salvation that is not recognized, the, the dialectic of Orientalism or the identity through difference is inherent to a sinful understanding is not going to be able to identify what salvation is. And so, in this sense, human thought, human identity, and especially this becomes true, I think, in the case of the nation-state, which is reflected in Orientalism, you know, when we're talking about East and West. Ultimately, what we're talking about is the founding, then, of Western nation-states and their understanding who they are in the mirror of the East and where this has gone East. I looked at this a little bit with Japan, that the taking up of the the same discourse is then arises with the founding of the nation-state in Japan. You know, if you go back to Japan prior to the Meiji Restoration, uh, there is no sense of Japanese-ness per se, that if you'd go down to the southern islands of Japan or down to Kyushu, that people would do identity through their clan, through the Choshu or the Satsuma clan. And the very notion of some essence related to an racial identity, even the word racial is suspect here because, of course, the people that inhabit the islands of Japan, they're a, a, a kind of melting pot for central and northern and southern Asia, and actually contain there are the native peoples that uh, have resided there in Japan, the Ainu, and actually there's a Caucasian uh, DNA that uh, is is found throughout. And so the the notion of Japaneseness is uh, certainly a product of Orientalism, but it is also then uh, interconnected with the rise of the nation state. Now, what I'm saying about on this largest scale sort of understanding, I'm presuming it also describes the psychoanalytic frame, that we're not really doing anything different than what Lacan or others will describe as identity through difference, or what Paul will describe in Romans 7 as the the eye and the law of the mind, the law of the body. That is, there is a that one thing is posited over and against the other. The knowledge of good and evil posited over as a means of discourse in which the good is understood through the evil and the evil through the good. It's just a way of dividing up the world, or maybe more accurately, it's a way in which we create a world. And I, I think it's precisely this world that is being penetrated and undone in biblical revelation, which I'll come to. And so what I've demonstrated so far is that the discourse that is called Nihonjin-ron in Japan is then the adaptation of an understanding that 
several of these thinkers, you know, the idea that of the Amai and of a Freudian dialectic taken up by Takeo Doi. Doi, strangely, is a Christian. Suzuki, if I remember, is a, is a Christian. That several that Christianity, though, becomes a kind of inconsequential because the Christianity was overridden or shaped by this ethnocentric discourse. And I'm saying this, that, you know, all this may seem unimportant. But my eventual point here is that in the West, I think Christianity as a shaping force is overridden by the same discourse in the nation-state. If we look at Shusaku Endo's, the film that as recently Martin Scorsese has uh, pr produced the film based on his book Shimoku Silence, the film and the book, the, the, it's an official actually who says to the apostate priest, Japan is a, a mud swamp and it's impossible for Christianity to take root. For, this is a, a, a several layers of untruth and truth in the statement. First of all, the statement is itself a part of an Orientalist sort of discourse in which the mystical, non-rational force people uh, in Japan whose religion is connected to Shintoism, that in some way what Indo is picturing is that they are inherently, just by the spirit of being Japanese, incapable of understanding or or in some way uh, being Christian. The period in which he's saying that is the Tokugawa period, in which I think it's Boxer who says that probably there were as many as 10,000 martyrs of the Christian faith. And to say that Christianity did not take root is precisely not true, because it was, it was one of the most rapidly Christianizing uh, countries in Asia. And so it was precisely because Christianity was ripe for the takeover of Christianity, and takeover may be the correct word here, because, of course, the ruling elites imagined that with uh, Christianity, this is what a pilot, a stranded pilot of the shogun sent to him, that sent back word. Well, he said, if you let these Jesuit missionaries in, that this is their first step in softening you up for a, a political takeover. And so... Japan is not a mud swamp in the Tokugawa period, and it, in of course, the very notion of some sort of ethnic or racial or identity in Japaneseness that would resist Christianity. That's not true at one level, but of course it becomes a truth at another level, but it is a truth that is more connected with the modern Japan in which Christians are a, a very small minority, less than 1%. I don't know that that's ever budged in spite of all the missionary activity that's taken place there. And so if there is a resistant core to Japan, it's not anything that is there because of these particular people, but it's a, a modern understanding that if you go back to the major restoration part of the discussion in the Meiji Restoration was how to ward off the Western other, and specifically the, the Western Christians. You know, when Admiral Perry comes into Tokyo Bay in his uh, gunboats and insists on opening trade with Japan, they understood that this was a power, that a military power that they could not reckon with. They had, you know, prior to this, the population has been more or less forced to uh, subjugate themselves to the ruling powers because of violence 
that they would just be killed if they did not obey. But it was becoming clear that that sort of uh, ability to control through an overt force would have to be displaced by an ideology. And this is not, uh, what I'm describing is no mystery. This was the discussion in Tokyo. The ruling elites literally create a religion and set out to create an identity. They send out evangelists for the new state, Shinto, in order to bring about the coherence that's needed to develop the Japan into a singular identity. And so, in taking the notion that Japaneseness is, in some way, you know, that that's the mud swamp, it is fa a failure to recognize what Orientalist studies always do. It imagines there is something intrinsic, racial, ontologically different in Japan. But you can trace these ideas in their development, and, and it's not an easy uh, process to put into place. Uh, a, a notion of a national identity, but one might think that it was successful. And of course, it is very much interconnected with the adaption of a British imperialistic understanding. They literally are taking the British monarchy and, you know, the idea of a, the British king is the head of the church. And so what the meaning of the major restoration is that the emperor would be made head of the new state religion. And so Indo's picture is anachronistic in that it's projecting backward into Tokugawa. The novel takes place in 17th century Japan, what was actually a much later development. Now what he's, I mean, he's really in a way just telling a historical story there. There's a lot, it's grounded in history. There really was, these characters are all based on historical characters. There really was an apostate priest in there. Who, who acted as a kind of apologist for uh, the, the ruling elites to, in some way, uh, deconstruct Christianity. The problem, of course, is mistaking an ideology of difference that will develop as if it is some reality. And this is, this is just inherent in the Orientalist understanding, but maybe it's the case that ideology, nationalism, the modern nation-state, every mode of thought in the modern period then is going to follow the same pattern. And so if Christianity cannot be planted in Japanese soil, that raises the question, I wonder if it can be planted in Western soil without the same corrupting effects, because of course the forces that were there in Meiji Japan or leading up, you know, even up uh, later into the 20th century, are the same forces, the colonial, nationalistic, patriotic forces that are leveraged on the population in this country. But of course, Christianity has been made to cohere to this understanding. And so, in the dialectic you know, between the Orient and the Occident, it would seem to have the same corrupting effect in both directions. That is, does Christianity uh, accede to this understanding? Has it then been forced to fit into a form of thought which, in fact, it would or would or should stand over and against? And so we, we have to recognize the strength of this thing that we're describing. It's not simply 
a psychoanalytic problem. It's not simply a problem that's inside of us. It's a layered over reality as we have it. It's layered over studies of the world as we have them. You know, inevitably, we're going to be subjected to these same corrosive understandings unless we can name them, unless we can identify what it is that, that the nature of that reality. Now, of course, the roots of this, the understanding of this, if you go back to Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel and his whole picture, he discovers a kind of dialectic that uh, is there in the Orientalism, and that his whole point is that the slave-master dialectic, or he reduces all of human history to a dialectic, and he even goes back and gives us a reading of Genesis 3, in which the fall of man is thought to be a necessity that he has to have the knowledge of good and evil so that he can think, so that he can have cognition. And Hegel is not unaware of the the thing, the, the function of this discourse, that is that it is always an unstable dialectic in which one of the opposed pairs is in some way going to consume the other. But he does not think of this simply as a convention of language, though he will use, he, one of the illustrations he uses is the word this, which, you know, a simple uh, shifter in the English language. Everything can't be this and it have any meaning, and so there has to be a negation, there has to be a not this. And this is true of many shifters in the language. This will be true of the, you know, the, the uh, I, the, the word I. And so, but when he says there is a not this, and the, this gets meaning from, from not this, he's positing a real negation. That is, he's picturing this not this, this nothingness, this death, this absence, not as a, a convention of the language, but as a metaphysical reality. And of course, this is his reading of Christianity, that ultimately the dialectic, the identity through difference, will give way to a, a unified sameness. So difference reduces to sameness. Now, interestingly, this Jacques Derrida follows this, but it hit the difference between Derrida throughout his corpus, but in his reading of Genesis chapter 3, he says, yeah, it's the identity through difference, but to project this as a metaphysical reality is that that is to project on the world something that is subject to being deconstructed the power of knowledge we might say of a particular kind of knowledge is going to shape our understanding of everything and when we come to uh, an idea like the body of death or the body of sin and paul what he's really taking up is that this dialectic, this dividedness, this alienation is not a reality that we have to know everything through, but in fact is undone in Christ. This is what Christian salvation does for us. If you go through the picture of the differences, you know, we've talked a little about, about the positing of this dialectic, that what you will see, beginning with the whole picture of the geoclimatic difference, which was originally a British notion that's taken up in uh, Japan, the continent produces one form of thought in Japan, an island country. In, in all of this, then, the, maybe the key part of this geoclimactic difference 
is that what Jap the Japanese will say about the West is that this, the significant development of Christianity is in a desert climate in which nature then dominates man and creates uh, a Christianity that is inherently violent in which God himself has to die on a cross and in which people are are naturally aggressive and even in their farm life you know I mentioned this before they would eat their farm companions and in a Japanese setting where nature is rich that instead of man prevailing over nature nature prevails over man and this is pictured in other words what is truth in this understanding well nature itself uh, is in some way the world the cosmos is the truth. This is a typical understanding. It's there in the West, just in a slightly different form, but just blatantly there in the East, that uh, to be a natural man, uh, you know, you're going to get this in uh, various forms of uh, romanticism in, in Western thought, but to just be a, to give oneself over to nature is to then live true, where the Western construct, and this is really what is being projected, ironically, Japanese are projecting onto the West, that the West then is living a kind of false understanding in their dominance over nature. And this is a product of the climate, it's a product of a whole economy based on slaves, you know, that man dominating man. It's based on the pastoral, nomadic culture of the, the biblical cultures, what's being thought here as over and against a settled agriculture. It's based upon the animal flesh diet of Westerners, whereas in the East or Japanese, they're primary, primarily a vegetable or rice diet. Uh, this, you know, gives rise to the whole notion of the different intestinal links and the Japanese then have long intestines, which is also then connected to the notion of a communal, cooperative group identity. That the whole society, you know, is pictured as uh, that there is an essence, an inherent essence in which groupism, contextualism, is the reality in Japan, and individualism is the, a kind of struggling falsehood. It's the difference in between contract. And this becomes interesting, of course, because at some level, at some, at some point, you can't help but saying things that are true. And what is noticed in, in a Japanese understanding, and it's there in China, it's there in, through much of, of Asia, is that relationship is really still on the basis of a kin track, of a, a familial relationship, a blood relationship, that then gives rise to an, a, a very different sensibility. If you had to trace the two sensibilities, you know, that contract relates to guilt as kin track relates to shame, if you had to identify the biblical picture, of course, it is the or the Bible is written in an oriental frame, and I think gets at the truth of the human condition here in a way that individualism and contractualism that has just shaped Western theology 
is in fact a layering or a departure from a, a biblical understanding. So if you uh, put this in, in Pauline terms, that his picture uh, is that this you know, dividedness is inherent to what he calls the body of death. So, you know, the typical understanding in the, the West that the body dies and the soul goes to heaven. It is a kind of Greek understanding that's forced on to the biblical narrative. If you think of a passage like Paul's describing resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, his picture is precisely that apart from the bodily resurrection of Christ and the bodily resurrection of believers, that Christianity is a lie, that it's nihilistic, that the apostles are liars. And so Paul, in both in Romans and in, in Corinthians, what he's describing is that resurrection defeats uh, a form of life uh, in which one is divided over and against the self, in which there is a, an acquiescence of the body to the soul, in which those two things are divided up. Uh, you know, as he says, that uh, the battle within the self is one in which evil lies close at hand. The body of death pits the members of my body against the law of my mind, and this makes me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my men members. And so sin is a, a way of being an epistemology, a world which in fact con would constitute itself in and through a dialectic. And we might just picture the modern nation-state as a product then of what Paul is describing as this failed or fallen dialectic. And unfortunately, in the Western Christianity, whether you're talking about a, a liberal Christianity that perhaps has taken the Cartesian cogito as its primary mode of thought, I think, therefore, I am, in which the two eyes, there's too many eyes in the cogito, and uh, the, it's almost a dualism within that is not recognized. Kant recognizes it. He pictures the world of thought and the world of being as two realms apart from one another. And so literally, if you think of Cartesian, the Cartesian moment as the founding of modernity, Modernity is found is founded on a, a dualism, and dualism is precisely what Paul is identifying as the lie that is undone in Christ, that the body of death is undone in resurrection. The body of death is undone in baptism in which one dies to that form of life and is raised again. What you die to is dualism. You know, John does the same thing with his... He poses these apparent dualism, but he poses it not to say that it's the case, but to show that light overcomes darkness, that truth defeats lies, that life overcomes, defeats death, so that one of the, the pairs is in fact undone by the other, and this is undone this is through Christ. So in Western theology, really there's two forms of theology, a Cartesian philosophical individualism, and we understand faith in this system as a kind of end in itself, that faith is salvific, one just kind of uh, it doesn't do anything outside of the mind, 
uh, in a theological liberalism, it, it is just a dependent Schleiermacher pictured as, as a, an ultimate dependence on God. But in fact, a conservative uh, theological understanding, which is relying upon the laws of nature, laws of science, laws of reason, is still it, uh, that faith is a cognitive af affirmation of the historical reality of Christ and especially of the resurrection, but it still pits the, this historical reality in John Locke's understanding of the mind or the world of the interior world is that which is subject to doubt. Both begin then with the reality to which it is presumed one has accessed just by a natural givenness. And in this, I think, it overlaps. In other words, the mistake is always the same mistake, the mistaken understanding that we talk about in a Japanese context, that we in some way have uh, access to God through nature, through ethics. We understand that you know God is a just God. And of course, all of this is a mis misreading of Paul's picture in Romans chapter 1, maybe 1 through 4. What is missed is Paul's law of sin and death that would divide up the world and which is undone through resurrection. You know, as he says in Romans 8, 2, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus made me free from the law of sin and death. And so Paul pictures the body of sin as being reduced to nothing, really the nothing from whence it came, as uh, it, life, the spirit, displaces it. The body of death is put to death in Christ for those who have died, he says, in Christian baptism. And baptism is the ontological alternative to the body of death. Uh, instead of being joined to death, one is joined to the resurrected body of Christ. And he said, you know, this is, he works this out in chapter 8 of Romans, that this is connected to the redemption of the body, the redemption of the cosmos itself. And so once you, once you can name the discourse, I think that's what Paul's doing. He's naming the discourse. He's naming the dialectic. He's saying here is a way of doing identity. He even describes this in 2 Corinthians as this knowledge which, which can arise from the self. And he pits this then against a resurrection knowledge. And what he's saying in Corinthians in 15, he has abolished all rule, all authority, all power through his resurrection. How could that be possible? Well, it's possible because rule, authority, power in the human realm is in and through this dividedness and death characteristic of the Occident and the Orient. Uh, he has put all things in subjection under his feet so that God may be all in all. This, as Paul describes it, apart from resurrection, Christianity is a futility, a lie, an absence, a nothingness. And this nothingness is that thing that has resisted God. But in the resurrection, he has put this under his feet as resurrection defeats the apparent dualism by closing the gap of the empty dialectic the empty, divided identity. And so I think Orientalism is, in this sense, is just a case in point of a failed identity, a false understanding, and a Christianity that cannot name this thing, 
is itself going to be shaped, and in fact has been shaped, in contractual theology, whether we're talking about its liberal manifestation or in a conservative understanding. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.